Hi, everyone. Well, this is the last episode of The Photo Show for 2015. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all enjoying your holidays and Happy New Year to everyone. I know the release of the show has been a little bit more sporadic, as uh, I explained earlier. When I'm teaching, uh, I just don't have the time to release on a weekly basis. Some of you actually told me that's a good thing because it gives you time to catch up on the show. So I thought with this very busy shopping time of the year, uh, it would be fun to visit a camera store. So Kai McBride and I went out to visit Jeff Hirsch at PhotoCare in New York City. PhotoCare is just one of the best camera stores for series photographers, and we had a great conversation about how Jeff gets into this business, but also a bit of history about PhotoCare, which started out as the underground gallery on 10th Street in the early 1960s. And it was only one of two or three galleries in New York City where photographers could show work. We even dive a little deeper into equipment than you are normally accustomed to hearing on this show. I mean, after all, we were in a camera store surrounded by all kinds of toys. So again, thanks for listening this past year and have a happy new year. And if you are a regular listener, how about a New Year's resolution to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a little feedback? All right. Thanks, everyone. Happy New Year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're here at PhotoCare in New York City. Really, one of the great camera scores stores. Let me say that again. <laughs> what did I mean by that? One of the great camera stores of New York. And we're here with owner Jeff Hirsch. Hello, Jeff. Hi there. Good and morning. I'm here with my uh, co-host, Comic Bride. Hello. So, Jeff, you've been. So, I was reading the. Um, I think it's called the PhotoCare blog site, and it. Um, there was a little Q&A with you on the side, and it, it says you've been the owner for 22 years of PhotoCare. <laughs> Is wow, that a surprise? Well, <laughs> I haven't uh, added up the years, but you know, I've been here since 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... I, that, I, I officially took over from the previous owner in uh, 91. Who was so, the previous owner? Norbert Kleber. Hmm. Uh, Norbert started the store... Uh, actually, it started as a gallery, the Underground Gallery, which... Um, in and of itself was extremely noteworthy. Hmm. Um, something I'm very proud of the association and the, uh, the history. Uh, so in 63, he opened it up as a, as a gallery. Uh, Dwayne Michaels had his first show here. Um, Neil Slavin hmm. had his first show here. That was, I think, in conjunction with the introduction of uh, his book, Portugal, yeah. published by Lustrum. Yeah, those three, um, those three or four Lustrum books. Right, the out. first, he was, um, he was the second book as I remember maybe third Ralph Gibson Mary Ellen and yeah. then and then him it was an amazing place because it filled a gap in time after the limelight gallery closed Helen G you know left this wide open there was no photography only gallery if you read uh, I forget which page but in um, Leo Rubenfein's Win a Grand Book mm -hmm. uh, the uh, there's a story in there, uh, and I have to think about this. When Todd Papa George first met Gary Winogrand, it was at the Underground Gallery show for Joel Myrowitz. Wow. So that's, <laughs> yeah, and that's he funny. remarked that to me, uh, retold it to me just a half a year ago or so. I, you know, have the book. 
I never read that page. Right. Um, but I thought that was, that was phenomenal. That is. That's quite a history. Yeah. Uh, so 1968, Norbert didn't transition to retail, but he opened up the store as um, a store catering to the still life photographer, the mm. studio photographer. It's a place where you could see view cameras, uh, studio stands, studio lighting. Now, did you used to go to the gallery then? Were you going there? In? No. Okay. 1963, I was a little kid. Yeah, I just know? thought maybe you were no. getting dragged along. No, no, and actually, I never was even aware of the Underground Gallery until mm. I probably was an assistant. Mm -hmm. um, and then the stories came out. And uh, at that point, when I was an assistant in Boston, we used PhotoCare as our resource for rental equipment. Oh, nice. An assistant where? In Boston. What were you doing, I mean? I was, um, I was an assistant for... Uh, in essentially one photographer, Lee Lockwood, was a black star photographer. Um, for a short time, he taught at the college I went to. We became pretty close friends. I was assisting in college and then, you know, continued. Um, what college was that? BU. Oh, okay. So, so you've, been, you've been in and around photography since your college years. Long before. Oh. You know, started with um, printing out paper. Nice. And uh, that uh, was a, a gift kit from my dad's friend, uh, Korean War vet, disabled. And he brought, used to bring me gifts, and one was a printing out kit. Mm. So that coupled with um, a trip to the darkroom from my dentist watching x-rays being developed. <laughs> oh, wow. Sort of... Um, got you hooked. <laughs> that got me hooked. Yeah. Do I said, you, wow, you... new toys, darkroom, <laughs> enlarger. Do you remember what your first camera was? Yeah, first camera would have been a, a Kodak box camera. Mm. Um, then the first sophisticated camera would have been um, a Kodak Vigilant 620 that mm. my mom had in college. So an adjustable nice. shutter, you could focus. Um, I developed in a Kodakraft tank. Mm -hmm. That and um, Instamatic, right. you know, black and white Tri-X. Well, those would look pretty good on printing out paper, you know, getting those. Well, the printing out negatives. the printing out paper was, you know, pictograms. It was basically, oh, okay. I, you know, it was a leaf. It was uh, something that was translucent. Okay, it, so you weren't it wasn't, putting it the wasn't, 620 no, it negatives down. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. No, that uh, that was um, tri-chempack, you uh, know, yeah. and, um, you know, probably uh, it was a, a holiday gift that I, uh, my parents or I bought for myself. You know, I used to take trips to uh, Corvettes or... Oh, S. Klein, or S. Yeah. Klein's in uh, Oh, you grew up in, around here. In Woodbridge. Right? No, no. no. I, I mean, in New Jersey. Yeah, New yeah. Jersey. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then, um, you know, then, you know, had an enlarger. Remember it well, the first one, which I sold to a, a relative and bought a B-22 at Willoughby's. <laughs> Willoughby's. You know, and then built the real darkroom, you know, at least three or four darkrooms. And, uh, you know, enjoyed myself. You know, darkroom was uh, part of uh, part of the area that I actually grew up in. You know, the the experience uh, of of creating, not being, um, I think, a very creative person. Mm. It, I think, the the skill set necessary was different than what my friends had, who worked on mot motorcycles. Uh, you know, I wasn't a, a bike. I didn't have a bike. Um, <laughs> It's not too late, Jeff. It's not yeah, too late. Uh, ain't going to happen. <laughs> so 
it, it basically gave me a, a skill set that sort of uh, was something that my buddies didn't do. Mm. And I think um, they, were, uh, they were amazed at you know, the moments that I captured. It was fun. It helped you actually find a kind of identity with oh, your yeah, friends. Exactly. And I think, I think it's that way for many people. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a lifelong journey that really doesn't ever have to end. It's uh, a refuge in some ways. It's therapy. Um, it's a way to explore and experience the world. It's a reason to, to go explore new things and yeah, create. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've also had several previous guests admit that uh, it was also a way to impress girls. <laughs> I was one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, thought, I thought having a Leica around my neck was the way to do that. You know? It wasn't the pictures. Right. Gotcha. What did your parents do? What did they do? My, mo- my mother was mom and my dad was a salesman. Oh, what, what was, what was uh, his business? Uh, men's clothing. Wow. I grew up in a retail family. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was in New Jersey. Yep. Nice. So then when you got ready to go to college and when you're going to BU, was photography on the horizon? I mean, did you choose BU thinking you'd be able to? Uh, BU wasn't my first choice. RIT was. Oh. Um, But my father insisted that I go to a liberal arts college because I'd never make my living as a photographer. (laughs) Gotcha. Rather, he didn't want me to. I have that Uh, conversation all the time with my students. So (laughs) I went, uh, BU was not my first choice. Syracuse was because Mm -hmm. they had... They had um, uh, a more in-depth sequence of courses that had photography in it in the journalism school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, documentary photography was my interest. You know, Life magazine still existed. Mm-hmm. The picture story was important to me. I was shooting uh, in high school. I was making money with a camera in high school. And I was, uh, you know, really headstrong. That's what I wanted to do. My parents probably thought, it was, you know, be a lawyer or something in business, uh, not their business. Um, but after two years when I had to declare a major and it was, I declared poli-sci thinking that maybe I'll be a lawyer, maybe two weeks in I realized I had no interest in this. <laughs> um, so it was either drop out or drop one class that I really didn't like and then try to transition and be accepted in the School of Communications, which, which happened. But the majority of my interest in the course load that I took was art history, uh, some communi- as, as few communication courses as I could get away with taking. <laughs> there, were nice. only, there were only three photo courses. Mm. So there was one color class, one. That's one semester. <laughs> you know, three rolls of film. Wow. Uh, wow. So you had to, if you were really sincere, at that point in that college's history, um, if you were really dedicated, you really had to do it on your own. Um, you had to work for the paper. You had to shoot on your own. Um, but they had the facilities. Oh, there were dark rooms there. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's half the reason I wanted to be there because, you know, I shot a lot of film and I could process as much as I want. I could print as much as I want. Um, and so that and uh, was really important. And two teachers that I had there were instrumental in, um, I'd say, my growth and decision-making to continue with it and, you know, head in that direction. Mm. One was Lee Lockwood, who, um, who was teaching there just in the, the time frame that I was there, and that was it. Um, it was recovering from, um, from diabetes. And 
The other was Carl Chiarenza, who was the head of art history and a um, uh, wonderful guy. The two guys, Lee and, um, and Carl, were friends. Uh, they were both involved with uh, Contemporary Photographer Magazine, which was uh, one of the, the great publications uh, somewhat associated with the heliographers, mm. uh, which is a long-lost group that uh, I became exposed to. So both those guys were really important to, to me in my development. And one other person who had a workshop in my hometown, his name is Bernard Hoffman. And Bernie was um, one of the original four photographers that were hired by Henry Luce uh, for Life magazine. Life. Uh -huh. So they, they worked, he, with, um, with uh, Burke White and Eisenstadt, worked on the masthead, the creation of the magazine, uh, and then became a, one of the staff photographers from the very beginning. And was until he was injured, um, photographing a story, I think, on the New Jersey Turnpike. He was hit by a truck tire, and mm. um, that was the end of his life career. And then he opened up a, a lab called the Bernard Hoffman Labs, which was purely black and white lab and regarded uh, as like essentially the best black and white lab in the world. So he, re he sold the lab, I, I suppose, in uh, the early 1970s to K&L. Hmm. Again, uh, another lab that's gone by the wayside um, and moved to my hometown and opened up a photography workshop. Oh, wow. And I, you know, I met him, took the workshop, ended up teaching for him. Hmm. Um, and it, it was, a, it was a, a long, wonderful relationship. Um, I learned a lot. And he did what I dreamed of doing. And you mean in the magazine yeah, world yeah, at exactly. all? Yeah, mm exactly. -hmm. Picture stories. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in the original heyday, it, you know. So then I graduated college. That was during college. Uh, in the summers, graduated college and worked for Lee Lockwood and then shot for myself. And there we worked on annual reports, which was at that point the continuation of the picture story in a commercial vein. Right. And a way of making a living. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. So you mentioned that when you were working for uh, Lockwood in Boston that you would rent from PhotoCare. Did mm -hmm. PhotoCare have a local presence in Boston or oh, you no. would get stuff from no, New York? No, you couldn't. There wasn't a place in, in Boston to rent equipment. Wow, um, yes. not, at, not at that point. Uh, mm -hmm. Even today, it's kind of difficult. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of E.P. Levine, but was E.P. Levine no, not set up No, no. Phil, Phil wasn't renting equipment. Hmm. Um, and the equipment that we generally would need, because most photographers at that point really owned the things that they needed. Right. Um, you know, we'd have to rent a wide lux or we'd have to rent... Um, uh, a very wide, a Brooks very wide 100. For, oh, it's something for, exotic. Yeah, yeah. Something, mm. something unusual. Um, that's why we, we had to pull from there. And the reason that we went to PhotoCare instead of maybe going to Chicago or L.A., if that was the case, was because of a relationship. Because Lee you know, knew Norbert, mm. uh, and he used to shop with PhotoCare and also with Willoughby's. Um, those were two places, because he used to live in New York. Right. Right. Just to back up a little bit, wait, so when you when you switched to communication, mm -hmm. did your do you think your parents knew that you were on a, a different track, a track that oh, was yeah, heading towards yeah. photography? Oh yeah, we had phone calls. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I, rem I remember. I remember. The, I remember the phone I called from. <laughs> oh yeah, that was you know, that was a that was a difficult call, but I just right. had decided 
that, that I had absolutely no interest in that, and my love was photography. Yeah. And but do you think you're, you ending up in kind of the, the business side mm-hmm. of it was, was an influence from your father your, and your mother? No, I, um, listen, I, I photographed for a living or tried to from essentially the time I left college until, you know, the, uh, the next five years. And it was always challenging to make enough money, but I certainly had enough money to travel, to shoot. Um, I walked into the store that I was doing business with in New Jersey, Fishkin Brothers, in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and on one particular day, the owner, Bob Fishkin, asked me, would I be interested in working on Saturdays? Because his partner, Ray, had died. And I'm not quite sure why he asked me, but I probably was, you know, had a friendly personality maybe. <laughs> anyway, we, we, got al- we got along and mm. he asked and I said, sure. I, had, I enjoy cameras. I enjoy talking to people uh, and sharing knowledge. So I said, sure. And at some point, probably not long after, he said, you know, if you want to, you could work more days, and if you shoot, you could shoot um, if you want to. Hmm. So we started that way, and probably within six months, I started working full-time there, um, shooting occasionally. And probably two years in from that point, I, um, I probably made the mental commitment that I like doing this a lot more than shooting for a living. Mm-hmm. I really I enjoyed the, the people that I met, I enjoyed the people in the trade. I certainly enjoyed the gear. And actually, I had a knowledge level that was higher than you know, the, the regular consumer that came in and in many ways was equal to a lot of the professionals that came in. I, I actually had been doing the same thing or solved problems that they hadn't had to solve yet. Uh, I was skilled in the darkroom, so I understood that. Um, and the person that I worked for Really, he allowed me to grow. He allowed me to to really try just about anything, develop almost anything in the store. And um, uh, I, I have a, a lot of my thanks have to go to Bob because he was uh, in in many ways a, uh, a surrogate father figure to me besides my own dad um, because he offered me opportunities that, you know, no one else had before. Um, whether he saw something in me, maybe he saw in me, here's a person that could shoulder some of the areas that I don't find so interesting, uh, take some, some of the load off me. Anyway, it worked out great. Mm. And I met people in the trade, and um, this, is, uh, this is a business, at least back 20 years ago or 30 years ago, where it was really all based on relationships, and much more so than today. It's not just about a box that you sell. Uh, the, the sales that you, you got involved with involved a lot of training. You didn't, go to, you didn't find it on the web. That didn't exist. You had right. to walk into a store. Um, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear you speak about the social aspect of it because you know, it used to be much more so that photographers 
would hang out in camera stores a lot and there you knew that if they if you would go there you'd run into somebody else that you knew and uh, you had a, like you were saying this personal relationship with the uh, people that either owned the store or behind the counter and um, you know when, when we were when I was watching the documentary about Vivian Meyer one thing that seemed pretty clear is even though she seemed to be like this outsider artist she was also she had a Leica she had a Rolleiflex she was clearly like spending time in camera stores in Chicago and you know that was a real culture it was a cultural spot for photographers to go in and fact the the store owner was one of the people who knew her best yeah exactly as far as well as you could know her and uh, and then photo care still to this day is that is that type of place where you know people come I know like Lee Friedlander comes in here regularly I, I almost every time I've come in here you know during a busy time there's somebody is here right yeah well that's that's certainly part of the enjoyment Right. Certainly for me and most of the staff here, um, whether it's a noteworthy customer or not, um, it, it's really all about relationships. And that's what's, that's what's changed so much. And it's not about to go back to, we'll say, the good old days. Right. But I'd say that the camera store and meeting other people um, was, was a center that was part of an assistant or photographer's day, certainly their week they would always visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would have been labs nearby that would have given them time after they dropped off the film to come visit. They'd see other people. Those, those episodes really don't exist anymore to a large extent. Um, the closest thing I can come to it within our field is going on Thursday nights to art openings, mm-hmm. and you end up meeting and seeing friends. Uh, that's... That's the closest thing. Uh, photographers don't drop off film. Hmm. If images get processed and they're not doing it, it's done someplace else and it's done apart from them. Right. So there isn't a common area or common place that a Starbucks, I doubt it. Uh, yeah. So that's... Well, yeah. People that, go to Starbucks and they're all on their computers or their phones. Yeah. Right. That, that's, that's tremendously different. And it's, uh, I don't want to say there's a, there's a loss for it. Time moves on. Um, uh, how many people have a darkroom anymore compared to who did before? So something else takes its place. Um, maybe it's virtual, but uh, it would be sad if all we had was a repository with audio recordings that talked about those days um, because there is, there's certainly a loss, you know, um, staying viable you know, on the retail side is difficult mm-hmm. in times like this when you sell things that uh, require training, require hands-on. Um, maybe there won't be as much need with smaller cameras, more sensitive cameras to light that are digital. Uh, there's need for less light. Mm-hmm. Um, there's need for smaller things. Uh, kids in school, you know, live with a computer or their phone. And that's how they experience a lot of things, forums, filling, uh, or filling a room with a live discussion doesn't happen as often as maybe listening to podcasts. Right. So, so it's, it's different. Well, yeah, and speaking of surviving, I mean, we, you mentioned Fishkin Brothers and um, Willoughby's, and mm-hmm. I remember a lot of those places up until oh, the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, still in existence and, and some of them into the 2000s. But but you've done it, right? You've uh, you've not 
only you survived. You, you're doing, you know, the store does does well. It's expanded. Uh, and what do you think about that? What What do you think someone needs to do to to stay viable? To to, to be able to move forward and, and not just keep looking back and, and saying, what was me? Have very deep pockets. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you have to have a lot of money behind to carry you through difficult times and challenging times. Because unless you consistently update, stay new, stay current, um, you become an antique store. Uh, not a place that is here to keep people in business. And that's our role. Our role is to keep photographers in business mm -hmm. shooting pictures. Um, there's still a place for that, but if you count the amount of camera stores that exist today compared to, you know, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, there's a drastic change. Yeah. There's very, very few. You can count on one hand the, the retail stores that cater to photographers that, you know, make their living with these tools. Um, I can, in my office, I have a, a list that is part of a, some literature that someone dropped off and on it were Leica dealers. So in 1965, you know, uh, the list probably shows 40 dealers in New York City that some way or another represented Leica. Wow. You know, so, you know, times change. Yeah. But to really to to remain viable, it's delivering uh, either boxes, which you know you're just changing money for boxes, or you're delivering top level service and support. Right, the uh, value add. There's that, there's sort of like yeah. no there's no middle ground. You you to try to be all, you have to deliver boxes, um, and you're a supermarket. We never were that. Right. We can't be that. Um, so we do the best that we possibly can, given the staff. We have a very, we have a great staff, many who have been here, you know, 10 to 20 years. Um, so it's very much like family. Same thing for our customers coming in. They see the same people. Uh, they've seen them grow, you know, and have families. Uh, and we have younger employees. Um, we we stick with our customers and we stick with our employees. And it's right. I mean, it's not just people know the store. People know you. I mean, you're out there. You're, um, you know, I go to School of Visual Arts and, and people don't just know Photocare. They know Jeff Hirsch. I go to Columbia. People know Jeff Hirsch, you know, and you have that. And we'll bring, talk about this uh, in a bit. That wonderful breakfast uh, every year right before the photo expo mm -hmm. <laughs> in New York. But and, and you're at shows and you're you're around. So it, I think part of your success is is. You know, it, it's you getting out there and, and staying in touch with people and, and seeing what people are up to and what they need. And it is the service part of it. Listen, it, it, most people come here to work because they enjoy what they do. Uh, I certainly enjoy photography as an art form, um, as well as the, the challenge. I appreciate the challenges that commercial photographers, fashion photographers have to go through each day because I was on the other side of the counter. I know how difficult it is to make a living. Um, and, you know, we all respect that tremendously. And we want to be there for them. Uh, I enjoy seeing what's new. Um, that's why I go to gallery openings, not just because it's someone that I know. I want to see what's new. I want to grow myself. 
you know, I, I just remembered I meant to ask you this. Um, so you you stopped shooting um, mostly, I didn't, not completely, but I mean, you, 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 you tapered back on making photographs when you started getting into the sales business. Um, but are, is there a, a pile of Jeff Hirsch photos that no one's seen sitting somewhere that needs to be discovered? Let's keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah I, I I continue to shoot. Um you know, I I have uh I can't say I have negatives that go back to the beginning because I don't. I threw out <laughs> I threw out many years um yeah. without realizing that um I should have held on to them. But mm. I continue to shoot. Um I shoot a lot every year, but I shoot for me. Um I stopped shooting commercially, you know, by 1983 or four um so that doesn't really exist but when i travel i shoot uh when i'm around the home i shoot it's my way of exploring i like to see what you know what things look like when i capture it um i don't know sometimes i have no preconceived notion um i just get a kick out of seeing how the camera transforms you know objects in front of me um and that continues to be what drives me to take pictures today. Shifting gears just a little bit, I was thinking back to what you said about when you used to rent things for um, for the photographer up in Boston. And I've had the privilege of uh, going on a tour of the back room and the rental side of PhotoCare. Right. And, you know, all of that stuff, uh, all of those lenses, all of those bodies. I'm wondering now with the... Now that the digital side has made a lot of the photography gear have the same shelf life as computer gear in a way, that are fewer photographers buying the higher end gear and instead, depending on service from you, to like rent these things knowing that if they try to invest in it, that in three years it might be obsolete. So, Well, you know, the, the cost of acquisition has come down. So um, I can't say that's necessarily the case. At the high end of things, there's still digital capture products that cost twenty to forty thousand dollars. Right. Um, those sales don't happen as often as they did. Far, far fewer are sold every year mm. in the uh, the medium format or large format photography realm. But today, you can buy um, you know a thirty to fifty megapixel camera for you know th- three to four thousand dollars. Not $30,000. So many photographers can own that level of camera where they couldn't 10 years ago. Right. And they can afford to change that so that, that it's a lot easier to just push that camera aside or try to trade it in than try to upgrade your digital back. So that continues. Uh, but we still have just as many or more customers that want to rent these products from us. That's a whole nother realm than selling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it continues. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I didn't think about the fact that the price point has come down on a lot of Tremendously. that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's made everyone, you know, uh, able to, to own that, that does this for a career products that deliver a level of quality that, you know, weren't even dreamed of 10 years ago. Uh, not at that price point. Right. And, and the same thing did happen with computers. I mean, when the, you know, they mm-hmm. were longer term investments when they first right. came out and they become shorter and shorter right. term. Yeah. So, uh, 
many of these things uh, think of as like cell phones. They have very, very little residual value after two years. Day and two. After the, and after, <laughs> after the model changes to the new model, not too many people want the old model. Right. Um, no resale value, really. Yeah. And unless you sell it quickly, you know, at, on the cusp of the model change, you can almost forget about mm-hmm. getting much of your value back. Lenses, on the other hand, stay for a long time. They have a much longer shelf life, we'll say. Um, they have more resale value. Uh, that's not quite the same. But the digital capture aspect, uh, the camera itself, that's, um, that's something that a person buys another one. And just like how many people have still have their older cell phones? They just never bothered to trade them in, either out of fear that the data is still there or just not going to get enough for it. And yeah, I've just got don't my, my last three iPhones are in right. a drawer right. in my desk, you know. <laughs> like and so, you know, there, there's many, many point and shoot cameras that all of us have yes. that, um, that we just never found someone to, to we, give them to. We can't get rid of them yeah. at school. We have mm-hmm. a, a box of 10-year-old point and shoots. Nobody even wants them. And I still have to get permission to get rid of them. <laughs> and, you know, and, and most of those are still fully capable. They were. Uh, just like an older 6-megapixel single-lens reflex. It's still capable of making nice pictures. It's just been supplanted by things that are easier to use. Yeah. might have Wi-Fi built in that have bigger displays, um, fire faster, but the ultimate image might not change much and might not impact much, certainly if you're doing e-commerce. Um, on, just on that note, you know, many of our customers have made pictures to, for e-commerce mm-hmm. reasons. Five to ten years ago, those pictures all were made essentially with digital backs. So you're talking about a, a setup might be thirty to $50,000 per camera setup. Today... Much of that, since it just goes to the screen, doesn't really have to be with much more than, you know, uh, a three to five thousand dollar investment. I wonder if um, a lot of that was shot with backs because they already had the big film cameras, and so they, you know, in order to I'd stay in that studio setup. Yeah, initially, yes, that was the case. Um, many wanted an articulated camera, so they'd leave it on a view camera. Uh, or they'd buy a Fuji GX680 that it swings and tilts. But that's, that's changed a lot. Most people will find, they'll, they'll find a way to do it in post, in Photoshop afterward, uh, unless you were brought up in a studio and see the advantages of doing it in camera. I, I also think that there's got to be, there's still something about looking like a professional photographer, right? I mean, I've had... Uh, students who are trying to get access to photograph certain things like to get into break into uh, a scene and if they show up with a little point and shoot camera that everyone else has they aren't taken as seriously and so if you're you're working as a you know a high-end commercial photographer and doing all of the stuff you want to also show that you have like the professional gear right you don't want to show up with a you know a little point and shoot to say oh this will be fine I can shoot your product with this you know, the, you know, the adage of uh, clothes make the man, um, you, know, you know, dressing nice means something. Listen, if, you're an, if you are a top photographer and an established photographer, you can show up with anything you want. Mm. Um, it, it's not, it is not the essential. Um, if you're shooting in a studio, 
uh, and you're just shooting products for the web, whether it's Lillian Vernon or whatever it is, it's about delivering a product that meets the specs that are necessary. So that's, that's not so the so, customer so doesn't true. care as long as it matches. The customer never sees the camera. Yeah. Yeah. The, the customer just, yeah, which is, it could be internal. It's, you know, they're shooting for themselves. They just need to deliver the product. Um, but if you are an independent, you know, if you're an independent, then uh, you might feel that way. Uh, certainly, if you're in the growth stage of your career, you, uh, you might feel necessary to, to dress up, to, to have a certain level of equipment. It's part of the path. Uh, it's unlikely that someone's going to start their career with you know, something uh, that they felt the client would regard as inferior. So we're, we're coming to the end of uh, the 2015 holiday season. What, you know, what have people been buying? What have sales, uh, I don't want to ask you how your business is going or anything like that, but what, uh, I mean, how have you seen uh, this season in terms of you know, what people are interested in? I'd say that uh, a big change that's visible now is the, the interest in mirrorless cameras, mm. the renewed interest in Leica digital cameras, that's, that's, I'd say, a, a very visible change. Mm. Uh, the, we've seen introduction of uh, Canon 50 megapixel cameras, Sony 42 megapixel cameras, uh, the Nikon 36 megapixel, the A10. All of those things fill a need, but they haven't driven droves of people to insist they have to have it because of the resolution. I'd say that uh, the... I'd say the biggest interest and the and the most exciting thing that people seem to um, want to see and handle happens to be the smaller cameras. Yeah. Well, this is about as nerdy as this show is going to get. So let me ask you, <laughs> is, uh, is, I don't know is, if that's a guarantee or not. <laughs> that's come true. On. Hey, come on. <laughs> it's pretty early in the uh, in the life of this show. Is Nikon going to buy Sam Samsung's mirrorless business? <laughs> you'd, have to ask, you'd have to ask Nikon. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's, uh, it, it's not something that I stay up at night. Um, you know, if you read the rumor sites, right. um, you know, they say no. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. You know. yeah that, that's actually a great transition to a question I have written down is, how do you keep up with all of these changes, all the minutia and the technology? I mean... The same way you do. <laughs> the exact same way. There's no, there's no secret, you know, uh, conduit by which we end up finding out normally before... Everyone else, um, our sales reps don't know. They're the last to know. Hmm. Um, unless we have a, a close contact and end up signing an NDA uh, because the manufacturer wanted our input in it, we don't know ahead of time. A non-disclosure so I, agreement. So, yeah, so, so I, I end up looking consistently at rumor sites, hmm. what are people <laughs> saying, mm -hmm. and try to distill that. Uh, and um, I second-guess some things, but... Uh, I'm baffled by, mm -hmm. you know, a number of things, including the the Nikon Samsung thing. Um, how about Fuji? Will they introduce uh, a medium format digital camera, yeah. um, which many of us are hoping they will? Will they introduce a panoramic camera like in digital, like the X-Pan? You know, these are things that customers ask for. Right. Were you surprised at uh, Sony's success in the camera market? I have my own thoughts about that, but I was wondering if. if because I think uh, a lot of people were surprised at their dominance in this mirrorless market, in this camera market, over uh, Nikon and Canon. 
Well, no, I'd say that I'm a little surprised that Olympus is not stronger than they are. Yeah. Being, yeah. you know, one of the, you know, with the Micro Four Thirds format that they and Panasonic designed, I, I just find that it's interesting that the, the early adopters and transi transitioners to that market aren't the leaders, um, which is something that uh, I think everyone has to understand and, and realize that early, early adoption of a, of a technology doesn't make you the leader. It, takes, it really takes a lot, a lot of research, development, and extremely deep pockets to persevere. You know, look at Volkswagen with what's happened with uh, the diesel uh, problem that happened. It's going to cost them so much money that's going to make them have to take a backseat to R&D. I don't know what their future is. And this is coming from a, a diesel owner. But they had, uh, they, they did have um, some of the, you know, biggest sales in, in all of uh, Europe and the United States for a while. They did have, you know, so they kind of like what you were saying before, you have to have a reserve and, and deep pockets and, and they have it. So, yeah. so Sony, it. Sony and Fuji both are, um, are exciting companies for us to, uh, to be involved with. Um, Fuji in particular, because I really feel that it's, designed for a photographer as a personal camera. It's probably the favorite of most of the employees here. Um, many of us have Sony and Fuji ourselves, hmm. as well as Leicas and Canons and Nikons. But in the small camera realm, while they don't have a full frame sensor, uh, at some point, resolution, size of sensor become less important. And I think particularly as a person ages, you know, priorities change. And, Weight and size. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And my need, my own personal needs for um, not, not necessarily ultimate image quality, but file size um, is much different than what it would have been 30 years ago, where I would have insisted on a full frame sensor that's maybe 30 or 40 megapixel. It doesn't have to be because I don't make prints that fill a wall. Right. I shoot just for me. Yeah. So it's part of the journey and the experience. Fuji was, um, I guess, one of the first ones to come up with a, a viable alternative to a Leica digital camera, right? Something a bit more affordable when they came out with, um, what was it, the X1 or the X? You're talking about in, in terms of digital cameras? Yes, yeah, in digital the cameras. The X-Pro1? X-Pro1, right. yeah, yeah. Right? Yep, and the rumor is um, that, you know, it will be replaced with an X-Pro2. And I hope to see it when I go to visit Fuji next month in Japan. Uh -huh. Nice. <laughs> It'll have a different name, though, right? I don't know. It might be called <laughs> X-Pro 2. I don't know. <laughs> Would make yeah, sense. I, I, think, I think Sony was able to dominate this market because I, I, my feeling is it's because of their, their experience in the video business. I think they were kind of geared up for this idea of the mirrorless uh, project, you know, image um, you know, because they had so much experience already with their video cameras. Well, you know, on the, on the commercial side, um, uh, photography, where people make images to stay in business, um, being able to capture video in addition to still is essential. Um, to keep a person at a screen, you know, in the advertising end of things is really important. Uh, a still image is nice to refer to, to go back to. It's a thing that's seared into our you know, our head, but on the advertising side, you know, a five second, a 15 second spot is as important, maybe more important. And cameras that have that embedded in it 
are essential if a person's going to invest in a new camera. And the 5D Mark II started all that off. Yes. Um, and Sony has, uh, true, uh, as a video provider, they understand that market. Um, they make brilliant products. So that's, uh, that's part of the reason that they have um, prospered and they've become dominant in that mirrorless market. Do you find that uh, the, because of that need to maybe shoot video while you're on, on assignment that um, uh, people are buying more continuous lighting, you know, buying hot lights or LED lights or something and relying less and less on showing oh, no, up with strobes? No question. You know, yeah. the strobes that they need are less powerful because sensors are more sensitive. Can have use an elevated ISO and and LED lighting is um, is definitely uh, something that is new um, that people certainly invest in. No mm -hmm. question. Uh, there's only so many lower lights that people want to use uh, because they're hot because they draw more amperage. They that they may not be running on batteries. Right. Um, all of this is important. Um, so. That's that's a good point, and it's it's part of what we sell, part of what we rent. Um, it's an essential. Hmm. All right, let's switch gears. This isn't Petapixel. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you do. We mentioned it earlier. You mm. do this really great breakfast uh, the morning of the photo expo. Yeah, isn't that great? With a lot of photographers and very well-known photographers and people in the business. Mm. And how did that get started? Wow. And by the way, you pick up the tab too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, gosh, uh, you know, it's, it started, uh, way back when with, I think both of you guys, I think it was, uh, 99 or 2000, we decided to all have breakfast together, uh, at a pancake house, hmm. uh, with Tom Roma yeah. and Lee Friedlander. And that was prior to the photo sh show that happened over three days. So on a Saturday, we all got together and, you know, I... I felt afterward that this was such a great thing. Why don't we make it a little bit broader? Mm. So it just started from there, and it be, sort of became a movable feast. We've gone to, I've lost track how many <laughs> different places. Uh, now we've been going to the same diner for probably the last six or seven years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a really long, you know, not Knights of the Round Table. It's a really long <laughs> table. It really is. Right? It's kind of hard to hold the, hold the conversation with more than a couple of people because it's so stretched out. But it's, a, it's, it's really a, it's a great time for everyone yeah. to get together in a, in a social environment. Uh, in many cases, it's the only time some of us see each other. It is. Um, yeah. And get to catch up. And it's um, for people in the industry... Uh, from camera manufacturers uh, from overseas. It's a chance for them to see what the social nature is of our business here and how valuable and important friendships are and not to lose sight of that. Yeah, I, every year I look forward to I like hearing you know, Tom Roma and Jane Mizell argue about digital. Um, or I, I, I was able to meet um, KB Canham. What's his first name? Keith. Keith, Keith Canham, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. oh, yes. sure. I was able to meet Keith and tell him how much I loved his camera yeah. that I own uh, over breakfast one day. Well, to, to sit with Henry Wilhelm and, uh, right. and, yep. and get to hear things that you just wouldn't hear otherwise. Henry travels so much and he's so so essential in our business as an authority on uh, the aging of materials. Um, 
he he adds so much to the the conversation and then the people that make their living using cameras it's really just a wonderful thing gary schneider um it's it's a great thing but with with lee as i'll say headmaster Mm. you know (laughs) lee lee is the the center of the wheel he's the core and that 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 really ties many of us all together um, and Absolutely. you know, I really have. It's to him that I have a lot of thanks to, to, to give. You know, this was the first time in many years that Mary Ellen Mark couldn't attend because right. yeah. she died earlier in the year. So um, it's you know the first passing of one of the regulars. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I was, about to, I was actually going to mention that. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing her every year there too. And so. And Lee didn't make it this year just because he was yeah. out of town. So <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, yep. We're down two yes. of the two of the main regulars. But it's a wonderful tradition. I mean, it goes again to this idea of this social aspect of you know of photography in general, but in in uh, having these these points where people can come together. You know, it extends beyond that. I'm thinking of the fact that people might come to you with questions and problems to solve, and like you said, you've got the experience of uh, having done it yourself to imagine how they could how they could uh, get around these things. But it goes even further because I know you commission people, you even commission custom parts to be built sometimes for photographers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah true, true. Um, it's, it's, it's part of um, feeling an obligation to, to serve. Um, there's certain things that I know would make a difference in the working lives of photographers. Mm. And if I feel it's so essential and I feel like can do it um we just do it it's difficult to do that if business isn't as vibrant and vital as it might have been before um but we've certainly gone that extra mile i've had custom parts made for james terrell the artist um uh it it's uh, uh for Gilles Perez, uh we made lens guards for his alpa camera mm. so that um, it would receive uh, a level of physical protection if he was in a, a tough spot. Right. Um, so things like that are, um, are just part of what we do. We yeah, like I'm, to solve problems. I, on a personal note, I, I, there are two things I can remember specifically where you just sort of jumped in. I, I don't know if you remember this. I, I had this idea of doing a documentary project with my students and the students from the School of Visual Arts, and, and you jumped right in with offering to loan us equipment and uh, maybe even uh, helping us with a show and things like that. And so you know, your, your generosity is well known. We, um, we have two locations in, in our rental department. We regularly have hosted shows, whether that's for um, a photographer that uh, recently published a book and wants to exhibit, or it was for National Geographic Japan to host a, a show for their winner. Um, Many things like that, um, just because we have the space and it's part of the, our own need to remain connected and show our acknowledgement for what our customers actually do. Um, I have the, I'd say the utmost respect for people that make their living with a camera. <laughs> I never was able to really do it. Mm-hmm. I certainly could never have done it and raise a family. And so that's still, I find amazing that uh, photographers can have kids, they make a living, they can send the kids to school with the money that they make making pictures. I think it's amazing. Just the whole idea that making pictures is amazing all by itself uh, and that this is 
something that becomes a career and a path, um, it's just still is, uh, I think, a wonderful thing. And even harder these days, I would say. I mean, the... I mean, it's different. Uh, yeah, it's different. But on the high end, there's mm-hmm. still work and people are getting, you know, paid can be paid very well. And maybe it's more of a hustle than it was before. I'm not sure. But um, on the low on the entry level, you know, people who used to be able to afford to have studios are getting rid of their studio because there's uh, young photographers coming up with, you know, very inexpensive gear who can make professional enough looking photographs for things. So the things where you might have to have hired a real expert before to photograph. Now you could probably get away with, uh, you know, a student with a DSLR and they send them out to do something. You know, well, you know I w- I've always wondered what are teachers preparing students for mm-hmm. if, uh, if it's not to teach and I'm not quite sure how many photo educators we actually need, but how many photographers do we actually need? And, and are they being taught, the skills that will let them prosper. I mean, it's never really been that case where they received everything they need in school, but today, how well prepared are they really, not just with the skill set, but for the reality of what is on the other side? You know, once they leave school, I was totally unprepared. Oh, yeah. yeah we're having this conversation all the time down at Mercer, and I've, I've had it at Rutgers, and I've had it at the School of Visual Arts. We're having this conversation of, about... Um, you know, integrating more multimedia skills, uh, skills that, that, that go beyond photography. There's a lot more integration with the digital film, digital television program now. And um, I, think, I think several programs are considering changing their names from photography to lens-based work, things like that. Interesting. I, I hope that um, both of you prepare students well. <laughs> well, luckily I teach at a liberal arts you know, That's college, right. so I don't have to prepare them to go out and be photographers. But I do have the occasional student, I have maybe like three right now, who are very serious about wanting to be photographers. And uh, without crushing their dreams, you do have to explain that it's not, you don't just run out the door and uh, make a website for yourself and expect uh, an income stream to suddenly magically appear. Yeah. Same in retail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you can build a bridge, but you know, getting people to travel over the bridge is, you know, it's it's a journey and it requires a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and it's but, not for the faint-hearted, but uh, that isn't my intention to make someone be deterred from doing it. Um, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. It's just more challenging, different challenges to make a living with a camera than it was before. So how, how essential still is over video? That's something the person has to discover themselves. Um, but still images will continue to live. They're certainly important for the three of us, I know. Um, yeah. But for business, understanding video and the moving image is an essential part of what we have to be involved in ourselves. Yeah, and I, I don't see, um, you know, writing on the wall or, you know, the end of the, the, end of the line for it. But I mean, if, if you think about social media, still the most shared uh, information on social media mm-hmm. is, the digi- is the still mm-hmm. image. Right. Well, it's a lot easier right. to send a still image yeah. than, than <laughs> yeah. share a But you video. can certainly upload mm-hmm. videos, and there's plenty yeah. of those out there. But still, I think the, the still mm-hmm. image dominates, the, even the social media world. And now the New York Times has that virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Now, I don't see any drones flying around here. Are you, uh, 
They've crashed. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you going to be getting into the drone market? Are you going to be no. selling those? No. no. Okay. <laughs> no. It's a it's a, it's a subset that um, is not really part of what we'll be doing. Yeah. And it's it's certainly more challenging to do it um, on a business level and in New York City right. than, yeah. than it was you know even a month ago. I think New York and probably L.A had the first set of regulations on drone photography. Yeah. And I've, I've sold drones. Um, they've been used in, um, in TV shows, but it's not, it's really not part of what we'll be doing as, as it is exists right now. Well, I can't, I can't let you go without mentioning a, a little personal history before I knew you, I knew your wife. Hi, Diane. <laughs> you hear that, Diane? <laughs> Back uh, when I was working at a at science at a science stock photo agency, uh, fundamental photographs still mm-hmm. around on the Lower East Side. Uh, Diane was one of our contributing photographers in the mm-hmm. agency. Yep, I still see checks come in. <laughs> That's right. Yep. I still get them too. Yep. And uh, and you and Diane uh, have a family. Mm-hmm. Yep, with a uh, with a daughter in college, um, with a, an interest in theater and stage. Loves making pictures, but it's not her quest, and um, mm-hmm. I'm glad for that. <laughs> yeah. But Great. both Diane and I both continue to make pictures, and uh, so does so does our daughter. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of your generosity, thank you very much for uh, taking the time out today to set up and let us mm-hmm. speak with you about the history of your world in photography and photo care and the future of all of this. Um, nice to see you. Oh. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone.